Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. The Passion Reading is taken from John chapter 19, from verse 17 to 20, and from verse 28 to 30. John 19, 17 to 20, 28 to 30. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of the high soap plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you very much for all those who have read. And uh, good morning, everyone. So again, for those who are new here, we're happy to have you around, and we do hope that you'll be blessed by this service. As Francis has told us, it is a Good Friday service where we're looking more in a somber and more reflective mood on the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to start off... um, Uh, But also, this message is part of a longer series that we've been doing through the book of John. We call it the Believe and Live series. We've been looking at the person of Jesus Christ through the book of John. We come to a most crucial moment in the story that John writes, and the story that all the other um, uh, three writers of the gospel also write. We now come to the climax, if you like, of the story about Jesus. Let me start off by talking about uh, last, uh, I think it was two days ago in the evening, I was gathered with some friends, and we started talking about the various challenges, particularly the economic challenges that we face in Nigeria, economic and developmental challenges. I spoke of many things. We spoke of challenges in education. We spoke of challenges in the widening inequality between the rich and the poor. We spoke, obviously, about corruption in the government, and so many different things. Now, but it's not long before, you know, you gather a couple of people in this country and you are talking about development. How can Nigeria be raised, you know, to a better standard that somebody comes and says, everything will change, at least most things will change, if only we had what? If we had, okay, you've never had those conversations. If we had what? Power, electric power, right? We all, you don't think that, well, you don't think that, I don't know what kind of economics you've been reading. But really, power, we talk about 
access to power, 24 hours power, you know, that that would change a lot of things. It would give, for instance, people more time to think, right? Because now you're not thinking about you're getting diesel or you're getting petrol. You're not thinking of how you're going to call the guy who's going to fix your generator. You know that power is always there. You're not planning, ah, there's light now, let's quickly iron, you know, or let's quickly pump uh, water. All of those different things, because you know there's always going to be power supply, you have more time to think. You have more goods to produce, because it's pretty expensive manufacturing with diesel and all of those things. But now, if the prices come down, you have more things to produce, and the prices will come down. The wages will be better. In other words, power leads to flourishing. Electric power leads to flourishing. It will bring flourishing. Obviously, there are other things. We can put some caveat here and there, but it would lead to flourishing. Do we agree? Yes. Let me tell you another story. Well, this one is a story, actually. It was 2001 or 2002, I'm not sure. I was at home with my younger sister. It's actually here in, in Lekki. And I was in the parlor upstairs, and she was in her room, also on the same floor. I was watching TV. And then all of a sudden, I started hearing, uh, I saw some, some sounds. Well, I started hearing some sounds, and it was coming from the parlor downstairs. So now, these sounds weren't, they didn't sound very, it was like there were sparks with it. So I quickly ran down the stairs. I peeped, and I saw the, star, the sparks coming around the air condition, the split unit there. Now, the way those things were going, I smelled danger. My first instinct was make a run for it. But then I remembered my younger sister was upstairs, and she didn't know she was in the room, that anything was going on. So I went back the stairs, closed the door, went, called her quickly, let's get out. There's something, what's happening? Let's go. Things are sparking. And so as we're just coming, open the door to the only staircase that leads downstairs, all of a sudden, the smoke that met us was the kind that you couldn't, you couldn't even run through it. It was so thick, it was so heavy, we actually had to go back. And so we shut the door. This was the only way for you to go downstairs. And so we knew there was a fire. And so we went through my parents' room where you had the window where we could call out to neighbors. And, and so we started yelling, shouting, shouting, help, help, help. And eventually, some people came, but they tried to enter the gate, but the gate was locked. At that time, we waited, hoping things would die down and maybe eventually the, the flame will go. And immediately after that, we heard two loud explosions. The windows shattered, and the fire was getting greater and greater. And obviously, I thought to myself, is this the end? I wanted to call my parents, but I think I called my girlfriend first, but we'll leave that aside. <laughs> Apparently, there had been a surge that had affected the AC connection. And in some way, that brought about the sparks. And the sparks then, the AC wasn't far from the curtains. And so that eventually caught the curtains. The curtains caught fire. And then the whole place started going in a blaze. In other words, power led to destruction. So we observe two ways of thinking about the same kind of power. And in the passage that has been read, well, not just the passion reading, but the full passage, we take the three of them together, we see a teaching on power that also presents to us two different kinds of power. And I think power is a very important topic for us Lagosians, and it's the thing we want to see today on Good Friday. So this encounter is all about power, 
And we find two kinds of power. One you can call the power of the world, and the other one you can call the power of love. So let's pay close attention. Hopefully this won't be that long as we consider this sermon, the crucified king. The crucified king. Now, I don't know whether you saw it. Uh, let's look at the power of the world now, first point. I don't know whether you saw it, but um, I think it was January this year. There was an encounter between um, the governor, I think of, is it Oyo State, uh, Ajimobi, and Lautech students. Who saw, that? Who saw that, the video, right? The school had been closed down through strike, you know, for a while. I think the staff had been unpaid, if, if my recollection serves me right. The staff had been unpaid for a while, and so they went on strike. I was just wondering. And then the students came and gathered. I was like, look, what's wrong with these guys? I suffered three strikes in my own time. But anyway, they, they gathered, they converged, they came to the governor's office, and they started singing Aluta-like songs, and there was going to be a showdown, a showdown between the governor and the students. On the one hand, the governor tried to wield his state power, his political power, by telling the students to remain quiet as he was trying to speak and respect constituted authority. On the other hand, the very many students, when they heard what they did not like that the governor was saying, they wanted the governor to respect their own popular authority. So on the one hand, you had state power, and the, go and the governor, and the other hand, you had mob power with the students. Now, we have a similar showdown here between this state power and mob power. It's between the procurator or governor, Pilate, and the Jewish mob. Now, if we take on the, let's think about the mob power first. What's mob power? Now, mob power is basically the power of numbers, if you like. It's the use of the power of numbers to overwhelm or to coerce, you know, to get your particular view. Now, we see that in verse 6. Notice what they did. Verse 6, they said, as soon as the chief priest and the official saw him, they shouted. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leader kept on shouting. Verse 15, but they shouted. They shouted, they shouted, they shouted. More power is all about shouting. And we see that, don't we? If you cannot get what you want on your own, then gather a number of people and get them shouting. Or, in modern day parlance, let them sign a petition. Get 10,000 or 100,000 people to sign a petition. Or why don't we do this? We carry out a boycott, right? Like now some people are trying to organize a boycott uh, of United Airlines because of, I don't know if you saw the video, of how they treated um, a particular passenger. So we can create a boycott. Oh, my favorite, my favorite. You can vote by texting a number if you don't want your, if you want somebody out of the Big Brother house. Is that, that, what, is that what you do? Just text. Don't like the way these guys behave. Let's all text. In other words, we use the power of numbers. Sometimes we call it the power of the people. What are these Jewish people saying? They're saying because Jesus, in verse 7, claimed, they say he claimed to be the Son of God, which in that regard would mean that he's claiming to be divine. But they look and say, there's one person there claiming to be divine, and look at all of us here, the people, strength in numbers. He cannot be right, and we cannot be wrong. He cannot be God. We must be God. Why? Because vox populi, vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. 
Now, for them, in this kind of frenzy, it doesn't really matter where the truth really is in the matter. It doesn't really matter whether this man was innocent. Pilate, at least three times, said this man was innocent. Look at chapter 18, verse 38. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. You see that again in verse 4 of this of chapter 19. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis of a charge against him. And verse 6, he says it one more time. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. In fact, truth really didn't matter, or justice didn't really matter, because eventually they exchanged him. Pilate offered them at the end of chapter 18, he offered them, well, he had the, according to custom, he could give them one of the prisoners. Here was an innocent man. They preferred to exchange an innocent man with one who was an insurrectionist. Verse 40 of chapter 18. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. You see, with more power as with every kind of power, the way we see it in worldly terms, the most important thing really is that might is right. And they, by the sheer strength of their numbers, had all the might. Now, if you're someone who's never had access to the kinds of power that our society celebrates, whether it is in entertainment, whether politics, business, sports, the power of the mob is very, very appealing. You see, it helps you discover yourself through being part of something larger. You've been insecure in yourself. You feel like you're a nobody. But all of a sudden, you're part of something, something large, something that can be accomplished, and you find yourself, or you find yourself to be someone because you are fitted in with the crowd. In other words, you use the power not to ensure the flourishing of others, but to help yourself no matter the cost. You see, one of the central things that the Jews learned under the whole Old Testament was that they had no king or God, or God except Yahweh, Israel's God. That was one of the things they had to learn because they kept on falling into idolatry. But God was going to be their king. They're not meant to have any other king. But when more power comes in, in verse 12, we see it. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Verse 15. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. Not just the people, but who said that? The chief priests. Sometimes the quest for that kind of power would mean that we take anything at all costs just to have it, just to find ourselves in it. You see, the problem with any kind of worldly power, like mob power here, is that it shows itself to be a zero-sum kind of power. What do I mean by zero-sum? It is a kind of relationship that means that if I progress, then you have to regress. It's, it's, it's mutually exclusive. So, for instance, the game, a match, a football match, it is zero-sum kind of encounter, right? If Francis is on one team and I'm on another team and we are playing, if Francis wins, then that means I lose. 
Francis can't win and I can't and win at the same time. Do we understand that? If Francis' team drew, that means I drew. We, he could not have drawn and I could have lost or won. So it's saying, it's zero-sum kind of part. saying, for me to flourish, you must diminish. In other words, worldly more power says this, Others have to sacrifice their lives for your life. But what about Pilate? State power. Now, state power, if, 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 if uh, more power is, is using the power of numbers, state power is using the power of institutions to overwhelm or coerce. Notice that Pilate is backed by military power. In verses 1 to 3, we see that the soldiers, Pilate told, ordered that Jesus should be flogged. And it was the soldiers that did that. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They even put a purple robe. Oh, a crown. You know, you have a crown. We put a purple a robe signifying some kind of regalness. And then they started saying, hey, oh, king of the Jews. But we know that state power always has military or enforcement power. Governor Jimobi, when he was speaking to the students. If he was standing alone and he was saying the things that he was saying. No, but if you saw him standing, there were like three or four people around him. Four. You know, these men with suits knowing that they couldn't be messed with. You see, with institutional power, basically, if you cannot get what you want on your own, we can get and gather that the might of the institutions under our control and wield power. We know how this is. Politicians do this you know, getting through traffic. Right? You know, a politician is coming, we're all in traffic. What happens? You start hearing a siren, and if you are brave enough, you follow after them, and God help you if they stop you. Or it is we can wield the institution to get, the political institutions, to get a contract that we actually don't even know anything about, or how to solve it. Now, it's not only politics. Sometimes we use this with money as well. Certain established companies are able to outbid Others may be even more qualified just because of their connections. Or some people whose parents have, are very wealthy and have connections are able to get their kids jobs above those who actually married those jobs. Or with education. You know, many times we say education is, or knowledge is, power. There was a preacher, Dale Moody, who said, if you take a, if you take a, a, a thief, a petty thief who has been stealing the boats of a railroad track and you send him to school, when he finishes school, he'll come back and he'll steal the whole trade company. And indeed, education is power. It's taking the power of an institution and it's used that for worldly gain. Really, in Nigeria, we know what this is. It is called the power of the ogre at the... Now, if you have been at the receiving end of this kind of injustice, you know that it stinks. It hurts. But at the same time, Unfortunately, many of us still crave this kind of power. We feel bad not because of what the power is able to achieve. We feel bad because we were the losers in the game. And so we then crave. You know, I, I remember one lady I, we were talking about, this was uh, some years back in Portugal. We were talking about how man, the government is so corrupt, everything, blah, blah, blah. Our sister was about to get um, a particular government job. And she, now, we're talking about the point, everything being corrupt. She said, ah, wait, oh we still have to have our own share of the national cake. Very, very sweet, the national cake. We hate it, but it's really when it's done to us. We also lost after that kind of power. 
Now again, the reason being, if you've not had any real influence in your life, institutional power can be very appealing. You've always felt like nobody, but now with these established authoritative institutions at your disposal, you feel like you're somebody. I must be someone with all these people saying, ah, yes, sir, doing this, sir, all of those things. You find security. Look, I must tell you, we even have that in the church, right? We have it in the church. The moment you, at first you are, um, you, you weren't um, any leader or anything, your name was Femi. All of a sudden, you say you want to plant a church, and now you become, ah, Pastor Femi, Pastor Femi. It's not so much the person. The person hasn't changed, but it's the power of the institution. What do you do when you take an insecure person and give that person institutional or authoritative power? An insecure person with institutional power is basically a dictator, a tyrant. It's why we have many abusive husbands. Very insecure with their wives, but guess what? The Bible says a woman must submit. A man is the head of the home. You see, that was the problem with Pilate. He was such a confusing, contradictory human being, wasn't it? It's ironic. He told Jesus in verse 10, I have the power to set you free or I have the power to crucify you. But in verse 12, he says, from then on, Pilate tried. The man had the power, but he said he tried to set Jesus free. Eventually, he couldn't. He was afraid when he heard that Jesus, in verse 8, when he heard that Jesus ah, maybe was claiming to be the son of God. Wow, let's, let me back down. But all of a sudden, he got afraid when the Jews mentioned Caesar in verse 13. He changed his mind. And the one who tried to set Jesus free, who had seen that three times, he had said three times that Jesus was innocent, eventually, in verse 16, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. A very insecure man. Pilate was someone who was seeking approval. He was trying to find himself a sense of identity. He thought he possessed power, but in truth, the power possessed him. You see, ultimately, this kind of worldly state power too shows itself to be a zero-sum kind of power. Because again, it calls others, like Pilate and the, did here, it called others to sacrifice their lives for you. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, but am I going to offend the Jews? No, I don't want. I want them to see me as a good person. So Jesus, sorry, you have to give your life for me. And you see, with this kind of power, worldly power, whether it's more power, whether it's institutional power, you will not flourish unless somebody else suffers. Or I cannot win unless you lose. In truth, we both lose. And evil wins. But the truth about power is that it need not be this way. Power in and of itself is not an evil thing. I'll say that again. Power in and of itself is not an evil thing. Just like the electric power example that we gave, on the one hand, electric, car, electric power was shown to be destructive, but we also know that electric power used properly can lead to flourishing. There is another kind of power, the power of love or lovely power, and it's manifested in Jesus. And so that takes me to my second and final point. 
You see, Jesus does present us with some power contradictions, doesn't he? If he is really the son of God, then why would he be at the mercy of mere soldiers, mobs, or even someone who is a pretender? He's not even Pilate, he's not even a king. He's a governor. You know, when Pilate put in verse 19, when he put that sign that said, hey, uh, the king of the Jews, don't think that he was complimenting Jesus. No, he wasn't. And he, well, he, didn't, he didn't really believe that. They asked him, are you a king? He wasn't doing that. What he was basically doing was he was making a mockery of Jesus. It is what Pilate was doing and what worldly power would have us believe. Because worldly power would have us believe and really, to a large extent, our society around us will have us believe that if you really have it, then flaunt it. Show off your bling. Let people know. The very famous saying in this place, somebody disrespects you. What the next thing? Do you know who I am? If you truly have power, you need to shout it out. And yet, Jesus is saying here that he is the son of God and he's at the mercy in chains of mere mortals. Even in Christian circles, we would much rather follow a quote-unquote man of God who is doing a lot of miracles or has lots of money, because that proves that he has power, than one who has an impeccable character. But Jesus is so different. Because in this situation, he confounds our way of thinking of power and gives us a different model of power. A radical model of power. You see, what he lets Pilate and the mob know is they think they are in charge, but Jesus is showing that there is even a greater power that is in charge. Look at him in charge. Verse 11, Jesus answered when Pilate said, you know I have the power to crucify you or free you. Jesus answered and said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am not an innocent bystander in all of these things that are happening. Pilate thought he had so much power. I have the power to crucify you or to free you. Jesus said, no, the power is given to you from above. In fact, it is to fulfill scripture, verse 28. When Jesus said it is finished in verse 30, he was, as we've been seeing through the book of John, doing, he was saying that the work that God has sent him to do was now finished. This was all in the divine Plan. In other words, the Bible maintains that even though we see evil prevailing sometimes very much in our world, and because we see this thing prevailing, we feel like, you know what, if you can't beat them, join them, the Bible is saying no. If you look with deeper eyes, evil is not running the world. God is running the world. Jesus is saying, in the greatest display of injustice that mankind has ever known, God was still at work. You see, when Jesus is silent before Pilate, or in verse 17, he's carrying his cross all the way to Golgotha. Or when he goes on the cross and stays on the cross, he's displaying immense power. What do I mean by that? You see, unlike Pilate and the mob, if you look in verse 36 of chapter 18, uh, when he's first talking to Pilate, 
And Pilate says, are you not, are you not, um, are you not, you know, a king? What, what, what have you done? Why are you here? Jesus said in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Pilate said, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Do you see what's going on? Jesus goes through this suffering, not as someone who is insecure, but someone who is perfectly secure in his identity and know what he, he knows what his assignment is. With worldly power, it is not that you know who you are and then you are working that out. With worldly power, is that I know who I am and it's very, very feeble and now I need to discover myself or get a better identity by wielding power. Jesus knew who he was, and the thing he was suffering, he was saying, look, everything is under control. Now, I say this is the most powerful thing, because think about it. What is coercion? If you're a slave owner, for instance, you want your slaves to do a particular thing, isn't it? And if they wouldn't do it, what do you do? You flog them, you punish them. Now, when they start doing it, do you think they really want to do it? Do you think they really want to do it? No, they're doing it because of the pain that you're causing them, really, isn't it? Now, you may have had power over their will, but guess what? You do not have power over their hearts. You have power over their will, but not power over their hearts. In other words, that kind of forceful power is very limited. You can get someone's will, but you cannot get their heart. That is different from the power of love. Because if love has to be, if I say I love my wife and my wife loves me, I cannot force my wife to love me. The moment I force my wife to love me, that is a self-destructing act. You cannot force someone to love you. You have to persuade the person to love you. You have to show loving acts and move the person's heart. When you move the person's heart, you get the person's will. That is why love is much more powerful than coercion. Because coercion forces the person's will but loses the person's heart. But with love, you get the person's heart and therefore you get the person's will. And so when Jesus is staying there and he's doing what he's doing, Jesus is showing the power of love. Jesus, knowing that his people were complicit, all of his people were complicit in one way or the other in the injustice or idolatry of trying to find ourselves and worshiping a particular image that our culture gives us, he knew that they were therefore destined for divine justice. But in love, Jesus carried the cross all the way to Golgotha, and as someone said, in the greatest display of love the world has ever seen, he stayed on the cross. In other words, worldly power says, give your life for me. And the result is no winners except evil and death. Zero sum. But the power of love says, I give my life for you. And guess what? We are all winners. Because whilst worldly power is a zero sum game, the power of love raises the tide. It is a multiplying kind of love. When I love my wife and my wife loves me, the fact that I'm loving my wife is not taking life away from me because she loves me back and both of us become 
winners? How would you like to have a football match? Or maybe what's one of the epic Nadal and Federer contests? And most times, maybe after they've gone for five hours, someone writes, he says, if there was ever a match that one person did not deserve to lose, it was this one. Well, in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we all win. So, do you know this love? Do you know the power of this love? Or you're still trying to hold on to the kind of power that the world offers you? Can I beg that you surrender not by being coerced to this power, but look at what drives this power. It is love. In the darkest moment of history, we see the greatest love of all. And if you are someone who already knows this love and maybe have some sense of power, maybe at your place of work, maybe in your family as the husband and the head of the home, maybe at your school, maybe you're a prefect, can you show the same love that Jesus showed? That is a love that gives to people for their flourishing, not to take away from them. Because when people are flourishing, we all flourish. You know, eventually, in the, after the explosions that was happening at my sister, uh, when my sister and I were above, and we said one or two prayer, our last prayers, two, two, of the, two, two houses away, there was this um, Hausa Megad from our um, neighbors. His name was Yusuf. Yusuf was the first person that came to try to open the gate. He couldn't. And whilst everybody was running helter-skelter, Yusuf took, went and got a ladder from somewhere. He put the ladder there, and then with the ladder, he came down. Now, at this point, the fire is still brimming, and so he's going with huge risk to his life. He's the first person that comes down. He opens the gate. Others come, the poor sand, fire extinguisher, and the fire was put out. After I returned back from, um, from the UK in 2015, I went over to the house where Yusuf was. And I saw this young man. Uh, I think his name was Yakubu. And I asked Yakubu, I said, ah, do you know one guy called Yusuf? And I said, oh, that's my dad. I said, ah, how is he? Please tell him when you see him that I said hi. And my sister, you know, we still remember what he did. He said he died four years ago. But quite often, when I talk about my near-death experience, I never finish that story without talking about Yusuf, who risked his life so that I and my sister could get ours. You see, I always remember Yusuf. Now, but Jesus, unlike Yusuf, did not just risk his life. He lost his life so that I could gain mine. He lost his life so that you could gain yours. And in that vein, he told us to always remember him, to remember him. He gave us this, I don't know whether you want to call it ritual, or a rite, a rite of remembrance, which we call the Lord's communion, or the Lord's table, or the Eucharist. 
in that we are symbolizing in the bread there his body that was broken on the cross. And in the wine that we have, it symbolizes his shed blood. Now it's a holy meal. And in that regard, I want to say this to maybe some of us here who are contemplating whether or not we truly have come to faith in Christ. Or maybe we are too young to have professed faith yet. What I will say is this. Why not contemplate what the love, this love has done for you? And you don't need to come at this time. But if you truly want to surrender your life to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then speak to one of us, the leaders that are here at the end of this service, and we will prepare you for the next time we celebrate communion. Now, how we're going to do this is eventually I'm going to say a couple of things because we are, communion is something that must be done with people, the people of God. It's communion. You can't do it on your own. It's done collectively. And so we're going to say a couple of prayers and we'll see certain things on the screen. I will say some things and we'll respond in unison to show our communitarian nature. And then after that, the ushers will come, they'll take theirs, we'll serve the, the musicians. And then Francis and Jumoke will direct us on how we come and how therefore we go. All right, so, but with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for this day, and this day what we are commemorating in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that all the injustice and all the idolatry that deserve punishment of his people were put on him in the greatest show of power because it was the power of love. And so we say that at this time, you bless us as we feed on this bread and on this wine, we ask that you join us in this ceremony. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.